Holy Spirit, as we have filled this room with praises and with joys and with singing, will you now fill our lives with your presence, with your power, with your passion? And so God, as we have an encounter with your living word, may these words leap off the page and into our lives and may no single person in this room leave changed. May we be transformed by your grace. And we pray all of these things with great anticipation, for we pray them in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. This Sunday's been a long time in coming. There's been a lot of buildup, a lot of anticipation to this day, and I just want to give a special shout out and thank you to all of you that have been texting me words of encouragement, things like, no pressure, eternal souls hang in the balance. Or another one, um, I'm actually coming to church today. Whatever you do, don't screw up. (laughs) Some of these encouragements uh, actually come from the staff themselves. I'm not going to mention any name, but uh, one of them happens to be wearing a skirt or a kilt right now, just kind of... (laughs) in this moment. You as a congregation have that spiritual gift of warmth and encouragement, and thank you for sharing that with us. As you can imagine, as we've moved from one part of the country to another, that we've been going through a whole lot of different adjustment periods. So we're adjusting to new neighborhoods. We are adjusting to new seasons, to new patterns. We are adjusting to a new home. We're adjusting to a new school for the kids. We're adjusting to the realization of what the phrase traffic congestion actually means. We're adjusting to that there's mud and then there's Georgia clay. And we're adjusting to the reality of, I don't know that if Atlanta invented the speed bump, but you guys certainly have perfected it and proliferated it everywhere. And just yesterday, we have gone through one of our biggest adjustments yet. I would like for you to meet the new yesterday member of the Conwisher family. This is Winston. And he's precious. And I'll tell you that one of the reasons we got a dog and that everybody should get a dog is because they teach us about the grace of God. And so one of the most sincere prayers that you can ever pray in your life is, Lord, help me to become the kind of person that my dog thinks that I am. (laughs) Well, talking about all these different adjustments made me think of some of the adjustments that I went through earlier in my life when my wife Kelly and I originally got married. We moved to the city of Houston. We rented this small apartment and we bought our first ever piece of furniture. It was a Thomasville Queen Anne dining table. And because our apartment was really small, this was basically the only place to sit in our whole apartment. And so whether you were eating, you know, a casual bowl of cereal by yourself at breakfast or whether you were setting out a Thanksgiving spread with friends, we pretty much did everything at this table. It's where we set out our work at night in order to be able to finish before we go to bed. And so I'll never forget one of the first times I sat at this dining room table. Kelly had cooked a delicious meal. We sat down together. I finished my plate. I got up from the table and headed over to the kitchen to start the dishes. And my wife is just looking at me with just big eyes. And she's like, what on earth are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm finished. And she's like pointing to her plate. Well, she's like, I haven't finished. 
And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, well, just because you eat slow doesn't mean I still have to sit at the table. But I didn't say that because we are still married. And she said, sit down. I'm not done yet. So I sat back down, watched her eat. And when she finished, I grabbed her plate and took it to the sink. And she's looking at me, shrugging her shoulders. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, you're done. She's like, I may be done, but I'm not finished. Sit back down. Sat back down at the table. And now I'm just looking at her and I'm not going to get to watch her eat now. And we talk a little more. And one of the things that I started to learn early on in our marriage was that my wife likes to linger after she eats a dinner meal. She and I, and we didn't know this before I got married as we were weaving our lives together, had very different views of this same object in our house. That my perspective of the table was one of functionality. To me, a table is basically like a glorified feeding trough. You are there to scoop in and consume as much as possible, as fast as possible, and then to move on to do something else. My wife doesn't see the table as a functional item. She sees the table as a place of intimacy, a place of hospitality. It's a place where you gather with people. It's where you talk. It's where you connect. It's where you grow. It's a place where you slow down. Two very different views of the same object. That table meant something else to her than it did to me. Today in Scripture, I want to introduce you to uh, two different tables in the New Testament. They are the tables of King Herod Antipas and the table of King Jesus and their different viewpoints could not be any more divergent from one another. And so if you will, reach for a Bible that you've brought with you or the one that we've provided for you to use in the pew rack in front of you, or you can pull it up on your smartphone or your tablet or your Kindle. But turn with us to Matthew chapter 14. This is literally smack dab in the middle of the gospel of Matthew, and it is a major turning point in that proclamation of God's word. Up to this point, the disciples have been mostly spectators of the gospel, and here we're about to see a change in trajectory where they are about to become spectacles of the gospel. This is a significant day in the life of Jesus. This whole day is the only other day besides the crucifixion and the resurrection that's actually included in all four gospels, a momentous occasion. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I need to let you in on kind of a pet peeve that I have with many of the ways that we read the Bible, particularly in our worship kinds of gatherings. Because when we often read the Bible in our worship gatherings, we kind of treat these stories as if they kind of teleported out of space. It's we just deal with this one particular story, and we ignore what comes before it and what comes after it. And so we know the story itself, but we divorce it from its, you know, historical setting as well as the flow of the story of how God's word comes to us. And so what I want us to see, if we just read the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in isolation, you're missing what is being set up for us is that Jesus's table is very different from the table of King Herod, which is right before it. 
And so let's see if you can notice some of these differences as we read God's word. We're starting in the sixth verse. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Now let's pause right there for a moment. Um, oftentimes reading the Bible is more like Game of Thrones than it is Leave it to Beaver. You just need to be warned as we get into this passage. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Uh, I would have lost my appetite at this point in the story at the dinner table. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns, and when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. We need to pause right there because this is a significant moment in the text. The first thing you need to know is that in the original language, the word for remote place there is actually the same language of that of the wilderness. This is foreshadowing that Jesus is about to feed God's people in the same way that God fed his people through Moses in the wilderness when they were on that famous Exodus journey. The other thing you need to notice about this is something that's missing. If you've read through the Gospels a lot, you'll notice that in those moments that when the disciples or when someone else approaches Jesus, they almost always come and approach Jesus and they say like master or rabbi or teacher or Lord. Notice that they don't do that at all. What they're doing here is incredibly rude and disrespectful. And we're going to get back to that a little later when we explain it. This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves and then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were what? That was a non-rhetorical question and the answer is on the screen. They all ate and they were what? Satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. May God bless the hearing, the receiving, but also the doing of his word. Did you notice the contrast here? The incredible divergence between these two different kinds of tables. In one, you had King Herod's table, and at that table, there's a great deal of fear and anxiety. There's chaos that anything goes. There's exclusion because it's tucked away in kind of the corner room in a castle. It's a table of despair and grief. It's a table of manipulation and all kinds of games. 
And then you contrast that with Jesus's table, which is one of trust and accountability and belonging and laughter and encouragement. Which table would you rather sit at? Which table do you often set for others? And before you answer that question in your own heart and mind, let me tell you a quick story. As we moved across the country to here, um, one of the little details that you just have to manage, actually it's a lot of little details, and a lot of those details have to do with setting up of all of your different utilities. And so you gotta make sure that the water's turned on and that you've got the gas and you've got the electricity. But the utility that I was the most excited about, truth be told, was the utility of direct TV. I'm a huge football and sports fan, and it had been a long time since we had had kind of our own dedicated space to be able to watch whatever game that you particularly wanted. Now, this is not a glorified product placement brought to you by AT&T, because it took four times for the DirecTV technician to get our DirecTV established. The first time wasn't anybody's fault. There was some kind of electrical issue with the house and we had to get that fixed first. And the second time there was an administrative kind of glitch. In other words, it said our address here in Atlanta in terms of our street and house number, but it still had our kind of city and state back in California and the computer just couldn't figure out how to make that work and so they couldn't make it happen. And then the third time, the technician, and this was the same technician each time, Benjamin. The third time (laughs) that Benjamin came to the house, he had been delayed on another project, but he still showed up anyway. And at this point, it was like 38 degrees outside and raining and dark. And Benjamin's like, I'm so sorry I'm late, the other job. And, And I'm like, Benjamin, there is no way I am letting you on my roof. It's just not safe. I really want to watch the game tonight. I really want to have TV, but you're just going to have to come back another time because I am just not going to have you go up on the roof uh, kind of in these conditions. And then my wife appears by my side and she says, Benjamin, unless you can tell me that you have really important plans tonight that you can't cancel, You are gonna hurt my feelings if you do not come into my house right now, sit at my table and eat my homemade, fantastic chicken parmesan. I think Benjamin was actually too afraid to say no to my wife. (laughs) And Benjamin is a very intuitive and smart man. And so Benjamin came into the table room and as we gathered there, he said, well, if I'm gonna eat your food, can I at least say the grace. He had no idea we were a pastor's family. (laughs) He said that he wasn't nervous before he said the prayer, but after he said the prayer, he was running through what he had said and wondering what he had actually prayed for. But he prayed for our family and we sat down and then something remarkable, something there I'd even would say holy started to happen at that table. Benjamin was no longer a technician or just a worker. And we were no longer just a customer or somebody paying the bill. 
all of a sudden through that prayer and the breaking of bread and the gathering around that table, we started to view one another differently. And we started to become friends. I was feeling really good about myself by kind of being so magnanimous and generous and not allowing Benjamin to be on my roof in unsafe conditions. My wife had to one-up me (laughs) and come next to me and to extend that invitation even further. The problem with what my thinking was in that moment was that I was still viewing what was happening through the lens of a transactional relationship. That I was still viewing Benjamin as someone who could do something for me. My wife was actually viewing Benjamin as a child of God and that it was dinner time. And so she invited him to our table. The problem with a transactional view of the world is that it empties us of the way that we're really supposed to live and to be and to do. The problem with the transactional view of relationships is that you're constantly keeping score. There's this continuous kind of uh, cost-benefit analysis that's going on in your head and mind, and the minute that that relationship doesn't benefit you, you will exit that relationship because you don't need that anymore. In a transactional view of relationships, you treat people really as objects and you're really using them instead of loving them and serving them. Jesus obliterates a transaction view of relationships with this scripture. He says, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I call you friends. If there's anybody in the universe who had the right to treat someone as a subject or as a servant or as someone who ought to just kind of be there to serve that other person, it's King Jesus. And yet he doesn't treat us that way because Jesus came to live, to dwell, to remain, to stay with us, to remain with us in those moments. And when you and I have these tendencies to kind of have a transactional view of relationships, This is something that's been going on for a long time. The reason that we think this way is because we are operating out of a scarcity mindset. We see this in today's particular text. You see in verse 17, it says, the disciples say, we only have. Remember how I told you that they were being kind of rude in that moment? Think about this for a moment. The disciples, this is not their first encounter with Jesus. They've been with Jesus all the way up to this point. They have seen him turn water into wine. They have seen him give sight to the blind. They have seen the lame start to leap for joy. They have seen the dead be actually raised to life. And in this moment, they have the audacity to say, we only have? And so they don't approach Jesus with master, teacher, Lord, Savior. They just walk right up to him and say, you know what, Jesus, you need to send these people away. There's a lot of them here. We only have. And we often have this mentality here. We only have a little bit of money in our budget. We only have a very little amount of time. I only have a little bit of energy. But the antidote to the scarcity mindset, which leads to a transactional view of the universe, 
is to heed this command of Jesus in verse 18. And you can almost just hear him in the text, take a deep breath and say, bring them here to me. And so that little sack lunch, five loaves, two fish, they bring it to Jesus. Imagine what would happen in your life and mine if we followed their example and we took our tables, a breakfast table, a lunch table, a table at work, and we gave those tables to Jesus. I wonder what the multiplier effect would that would be. I want to introduce you to a college athlete. His name is Travis Rudolph. He plays for Florida State, a wide receiver, very accomplished player, and he rocked the social media world because one day he decided to try to encourage some students by showing up at a local Florida middle school. And when he walked into the middle school lunchroom, which, by the way, has to be the most hostile environment on the human planet, right? (laughs) Some of you are just starting to break out in sweats thinking about sitting at a middle school lunchroom table. And when Travis Rudolph walked in, he saw this boy named Bo sitting all by himself. And he came and with his pizza sat down next to him. Bo is somewhere on the autistic spectrum, and while school is not a great challenge for him, the social dimension is. And you can imagine the transformation in his day and in his life when this famous collegiate athlete sat down at his table. As you look at this image, is this not an image that our society needs right now? in the midst of all of the hatred, all of the talk, all of the things that are trying to tear us apart, here is a moment where two unlikely people are brought together. And Bo actually started to become a little bit of a celebrity in his school. Now social scientists will tell you They will say what happens in a moment like this is that this is a transfer of what we refer to as social capital. But you and I know there is far more going on in a moment like this, that it's actually a transfusion of the very grace of God. This table is symbolic of the way that God comes to us in our loneliness, in our despair, in our confusion, And he sits with us. He remains with us. He dwells with us. God is with us. Do we have the courage to do the same thing with our tables for others? A lot of you probably came to church today and you look at your table at your house and you're like, it's just a table. It's a glorified feeding trough. In the hands of Jesus, it could be so much more. I love how a pastor in the Los Angeles area, a guy by the name of Ken Ulmer puts it, he says, you take what you have, what little you have, and you put it in the hands of Jesus, and when you do that, you have no idea what could happen. 
And so a golf club in my hand might get you an occasional par, but a golf club in Jack Nicholas's hands will get you a record six master's championships because it all depends on whose hand it's in. That a basketball in my hand might get you an occasional made free throw, but a basketball in LeBron James's hands can get you multiple MVP trophies as well as kind of NBA championships because it all depends on whose hand it's in. That a cello, like an instrument that we heard over here in my hand, if I started to play it, would send you running and screaming from this room. But a cello in Yo-Yo Ma's hands would be able to lift your spirits and inspire your soul, your soul because it all depends on whose hand it's in. That a pen in my hand might get you an occasional thank you note. But a pen in the hand of Toni Morrison or Maya Angelou will get you a Pulitzer Prize because it all depends on whose hand it's in. Are you starting to track me with this? This is a dialogue, not just a monologue. I'll break you of that habit after a while. (laughs) That a paintbrush in my hand might get you a stick figure on the wall, but a paintbrush in Michelangelo's hands would get you the beauty and the majesty of the Sistine Chapel ceiling because it all what? Depends on whose hands is this. Three people are tracking with me in the sanctuary. Those are really good odds. A shepherd's rod in my hand would be a nice walking stick, but a shepherd's rod in Moses' hand could lead them from bondage into freedom because it all depends on whose hand it's in. That a sling in my hand might poke somebody's eye out, but a slingshot in David's hands would slay a giant because it all depends on whose hand it's in. That a sack lunch in my hand might feed us for, with a non-gluten sack for, snack for a moment, but a sack lunch in Jesus' hand can feed the multitudes because it all depends on whose hand it's in. And nails in my hand might build you a treehouse in your backyard, but nails in the hands of Jesus will give salvation to the world because it all depends on whose hand it's in. Every once in a while, in a moment like that, the Spirit of God might move you, and one person in this room might say, Amen. Amen. That was like 10, as we're working on it. We moved from 3 to 10. The movement is growing. You take what you have, whatever it is, you may have that mentality, we only have, and you may be looking at all the needs, all the struggles, all of the challenges that are before us, and with that scarcity mindset, we like the disciples, we will try to push others away, but Jesus wants to break us of that and give us not a transactional view of the universe, but a grace-filled view of friendship. And so he invites us to the table. What could happen? Because he's invited us to the table if we took our simple tables and we placed them in the hands of Jesus. What kind of movement could actually start to happen through the city of Atlanta where these very strange people called Christians invited unlikely people to their tables, and when they got to their tables, this is what they experienced. They saw trust, they saw accountability, they saw belonging, they saw laughter, they saw encouragement. They experienced these things for themselves. Let me say it plainly. For too long, the people of the world 
have either been isolated from our tables or when they've come to the tables, they have not experienced these things and that many of our tables are more like the tables of King Herod Antipas than they are of King Jesus. And maybe the most spiritual thing that you and I could do in the weeks to come as we go through this series Maybe the most spiritual thing you could do is to go beyond your comfort zone to extend yourself and to find at least one unlikely person and welcome them to your table as you give your table to Jesus. What could happen? And so over the course of the next five weeks, we will walk through each of these attributes of a table of Jesus, trust, accountability, belonging, laughter and encouragement. And I think in that moment, you like me might find that you will go from being overwhelmed to being a person of overflowing grace. It is what our world desperately is hungry for and needs. And in that moment, we as God's people might actually become not just the people that our dogs think that we are, but that our great God knows that we can be. And so let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, in this moment, we know that you're not just gathering us together, but that you're sending us out to do something in the world in partnership with you. Lord, many of us come here and we don't see you and we don't see our tables through the lens of discipleship. And because of that, we treat people for what they can do for us. We, truth be told, use them instead of see them as children of God. And so God, break us of the we only have scarcity mindset that wants to push others away. And help us now to begin to welcome others to our tables so that we might be able to experience your multiplying grace. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said.